You know, I, I, I often wonder, we love to praise God in the good things, but does God still deserve our praise when we're suffering? And the answer is absolutely. Uh, but it's not as easy to do, is it? Uh, but it does grow our souls when we learn to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what life is throwing at us. So we're in a series called Summer Hacks. We've been having some fun with uh, various ways of thinking about how to simplify summer. Uh, in some ways, how to use pool noodles uh, to simplify life, if you will. Of course, the series is not about pool noodles. It's about James chapter 3 and uh, these qualities that are outlined for us that describe the life of Christ and the life of a Christian. And we'll dig into our Bibles in just a moment, but I do have another uh, summer hack for us with a pool noodle, if you will. This one should start to look familiar because we've used this particular one a whole lot along the way. But, and, and I realize some of these seem very you know, foolish, but this one's really good. You ever have the issue where, you know, you've got your, you got your fishing pole in the garage and you know as well as I do, if you're a fisherman and you're serious, it's not a fishing pole, right? Right? There's a bunch of fishing poles, which means you need a much wider pool noodle for what I'm about to show you, all right? But if you've got the issue of, you put your five fishing poles together and you've got them neatly stacked like this up against the wall but you know as well as i do garages being garages and sheds being sheds they don't stay like this up against the wall the one on the right goes to the right and the one on the left goes to the left and the next thing you know you're knocking over guitars and stuff right and you end up with this whole mess and eventually all five or ten of your fishing poles get bundled up together and put in the corner so that they won't fall down. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Now, really good fishermen don't do that. They don't want to damage the tools, right? right? But, but I'm no, by no means a serious fisherman. In fact, I, I can't honestly tell you the last time I used this. But here's what I know about how pool noodles help. You need to keep these in alignment and separate. So you take your friendly pool noodle and you make some slits like this. And now what you have is the ability to keep those things where they're supposed to be. And if you get real serious about this and you need something for this to go into, you could drill into said pool noodle, have another one down here, right? That this would just slide down into. Or piece of PVC pipe, right, right, something down here to support it, something up here to support it, and you know, if you get real fancy, you take this crack and drill through a screw back through here, so that this is attached to the wall behind it, and you've got organization, now, would you see that in my garage, no, no, but mine stays in the shed, and like I said, I can't tell you the last time I've used it. But it's amazing what you can do with a simple pool noodle. It's also amazing what you can do with attitude changes 
in here along the way. Again, we're in this series called Summer Hacks. Today we're talking about God's wisdom for more peace in our relationships. And we have read over and over and over James chapter 3. In fact, James chapter 3, the NIV verse 17 says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I thought, you know, we need to hear that differently. So I'm going to do something super dangerous for just a moment. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes in church. When do you ever get that invitation besides prayer and every head bowed, every eye closed? You know, I mean, it's close your eyes and listen to these words. This is from the message of the same, uh, the same verses, the message paraphrase of the Bible. I'm going to give you the larger context. He says, do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning. It's devilish conniving. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at the other's throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results if only you do the hard work of getting along with each other treating each other with dignity and honor. So I want you to let that sink in for a moment. And just for a moment, I want to ask Jesus to do a transforming work of our souls to give us His nature. Jesus, I thank You for everyone watching today, for everyone worshiping today, for everyone here today. And Lord, I pray that you would transform our souls to make them like yours. That as your spirit is, so would we be. In Jesus' name, amen. The wisdom that comes from heaven is pure and then peace-loving. And peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. It occurs to me that there's no peacemaking without peace-loving. And that there's no peace-loving without humility that he spoke of earlier, the humility that roots out bitter envy, the humility that roots out selfish ambition. There's no peace-loving without humility and grace and the even temperament we've described in this series. 
Envy here describes a determined desire to promote one's opinion to the exclusion of the opinions of others. And selfish ambition pictures a person who tries to promote their cause in any selfish, unethical manner. It's a person willing to use divisive means to promote their personal viewpoint because bitter rivalries develop out of these practices. On the other hand, peace-loving demonstrates a desire to promote peace between factions that are struggling to understand one another and that true wisdom allows one to experience peace. First, peace with God. And consequentially, peace in the sense of harmonious relationships between human beings. I told you guys weeks ago, right, that so much of this is rooted in both the Sermon on the Mount and the book of Proverbs. So let's listen to those. Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed or blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It's peacemakers who show others how to have inward peace with God and how to be instruments of peace in our world. Peace is first and foremost foundationally internal and spiritual. And out of that internal spiritual peace becomes a love for others characterized by the peace that God is. After all, it's Isaiah and other places that call Jesus a person of peace or specifically the prince of peace. And there is no peace without the prince of peace. Jesus, being the wisdom of God, uttered this prayer hours before he was arrested. My prayer is not, this is John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that they all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they might be one as we are one. That same night, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I wonder sometimes if the reason the world rejects our Christ is because we have rejected this sense of loving one another, this sense of being one as He and the Father are one. I'm not saying we're perfect here at Harvest Community Church, but I do think we strive to live these verses, that they are fundamental to who we are as the people of God. And the reality is you reap what you sow. And so really this morning I want to ask you, are you reaping peace? And the question, truthfully, is am I sowing peace? Am I planting peace in my life? What does the book of Proverbs say? Let's look at a few. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, describes its context is six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. The last two are a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict. In the community. Proverbs 16, 28 
A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 29.11 Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Proverbs 29.22 An angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. I say, well, does this mean that like Jesus kind of people are never angry and never experience anger? No. No, anger's an emotion. Right? We're made in the image of God. And the Bible at times describes God's anger. There are things in life that should make us angry. But Scripture reminds us that being angry and staying angry or living angry are two or three different things. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. We are commanded when we are angry to face it fast and to work towards dispelling that anger before the sun goes down. Now contrast that with, yeah, I'm just going to be angry at you all night long and let you sort of... And this doesn't just play out in churches. This plays out in marriages. This plays out in sibling relationships. This plays out in friendships. This plays out in our workplace. This plays out in the tribalism that exists in American life, right? All the ways that, that we go at each other. In fact, this, the opposite of this peacemaking, whatever, whatever word you could come up with that would be the opposite of peacemaking, that's probably the perfect word to describe the U.S. today. So I, I want to try to convince you that there's a better way. There really is. There really is. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I was raised uh, with enough conflict growing up that I learned to hate conflict, which really meant I learned to avoid conflict. And I thought I was being a peaceable person by just avoiding conflict altogether and refusing to voice my opinion. That never works. It never works. Conflict avoidance is not the goal and cannot be the goal. Because peacemaking and conflict avoidance are not the same thing. So I would say it this way. This is the one thing if you're taking notes in the first set of blanks, if you're filling in notes today. Conflict is inevitable and peace is not. I have to plant peace repeatedly and frequently. Conflict is inevitable. You can want to avoid conflict all you want. It's impossible. If you need proof, try, give it six hours. In fact, give it five minutes outside the parking lot. Anybody have conflict on the way to church this morning? If you were driving by yourself, don't answer that. Anybody have, I mean, seriously, have you noticed that the enemy does a pretty good job of, of, of putting us in conflict mode before and as we pull into the parking lot and then we walk into church? How are you? Good. 
Conflict is inevitable. It's unavoidable. Peace is not inevitable. It has to be made. It has to be chosen. It has to be planted repeatedly and frequently. Really, whether to experience conflict or not is not the choice placed before me. The choice before me is whether to pursue peace. Peace must be the goal. Peace is made by planting peace every single day. You reap what you sow. So I need to look at my life and ask, am I planting or sowing peace? It doesn't just pop up accidentally, by the way. It certainly doesn't happen accidentally. You don't just wake up one day and say, ah, this is what peace feels like. Who knew? You don't just wake up one day and say, well, I don't know where this peace came from. It just, it just showed up. I mean, Marcy and I have been on some drives lately and uh, this van that we bought, by the way, this, this van that, 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 that the funds have been donated for uh, so the church could use it for ministry is sitting right out there and unlocked if you want to take a look at it today. It's a little dirty on the outside particularly. I don't know if you noticed, but it like rains stuff. It wouldn't rain this week. It was ash and... You know, so it's a little dirty, if you will. I didn't run it through the car wash. I'm not quite sure about its height, right? I, I'm going to have to figure out some of those things. But in driving, uh, Bill and I went to pick up this van, and we were driving out in the beautiful countryside of Oregon, outside of Dallas, Oregon. And we, we make it out, and, and I just noticed we're driving by field after field, right? There's wheat fields, there's hay fields, there's grass fields, there's... There's, there's, you grow, you, you, even going up I-5, you see the countryside of Oregon, right? And now, this time of season, there are cornfields everywhere. And some people have got their cornfield about yay high, and some people have got their cornfield almost fully grown. Do you think the farmer walks outside one day, looks out at the farm, and just says, where'd all this corn come from? It doesn't happen by accident, right? Cornfields happen when it's planted repeatedly and frequently. And I don't know that I know a whole lot about corn. I think it's kernels, right? Isn't that how corn repurposes and develops? Am I wrong about that? It's not like there's corn seeds, right? But you don't just throw a cob every 20 feet, and suddenly these perfect rows of corn pop up, right? It has to be intentionally worked and planted and watered. I don't know if you know that, right? It takes work. The farmer doesn't just wake up one day and go, where did all this corn come from? He or she did their work repeatedly, intentionally, and frequently, The reality is, there's only one realm without conflict, and it's not the earthly realm. So what I want to do is I want to go back through the book of Proverbs, and I want to try to be insanely practical about how we live as peacemakers. And what I really want to do is I want to talk about what we do before conflict starts. This is about your spirit. And what we do when conflict sort of erupts, 
This is about how to diffuse conflict and how to not throw gasoline on it, if you will. And what we do to end conflict. This is about resolving it. Because I think these are the nuts and bolts of being a peacemaker, if you will. And this is worth noting. All of this reflects who Jesus is. When you read James chapter 3, you should be instantly thinking, I'm not naturally this way on my own, but Jesus is. And I need more of him in my life. There was a survey done, it's probably 10 years or so old. It said 16% of couples report having little conflict while 60% of couples report having moderate levels of conflict, and 22% of couples say they fight and argue with each other a lot. I realize some of you aren't couples, right? It's not like God prefers couples and singles are just sort of out there. Jesus loves everyone. And I made a crack a while ago about driving to church by yourself. And if you, if you had conflict driving to church, do you ever have conflict within yourself? Right? In fact, there's an inner voice inside of you that is working against you all the time. And that inner voice is your voice, not the Spirit of Jesus. So what do we do before conflict breaks out, what needs to happen in our spirit? And I'm going to tell you, much of what happens in conflict is determined before the conflict ever begins. Meaning how you will handle it and what your attitude will be and what your goal is and what you're hoping to achieve. Much of this is decided up front. So my prayer for you is, number one, before conflict breaks out, that I and you, that we would get rid of our fighting spirit. That I would get rid of my fighting spirit. It's my fighting spirit that is selfish ambition and bitter envy, as James says it. It's my fighting spirit that always has to be right. It's my fighting spirit that says, I never can admit that I'm wrong. It's my fighting spirit that always has to win. By the way, when we win the argument, we often don't win the relationship. Proverbs 20, verse 3, says, It is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Proverbs 17, 19, Whoever loves a quarrel loves sin, and whoever builds a high gate invites destruction. Proverbs 22, 10, Drive out the mocker and out goes strife. Quarrels and insults are ended. Proverbs thirty thirty three. For as churning cream produces butter, anybody anybody here actually churn butter like in the real life farm? Since there we go, right? As churning cream produces butter, as twisting the nose produces blood. This is that's like what siblings do, right? Right? They walk up and they, right? As churning cream produces butter, as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. He's telling us in the wisdom of Proverbs that it is natural to have a a desire to quarrel. But that 
fighting spirit that lives within all of us. And it's easy to identify that fighting spirit. Think back when you were growing up and if you had siblings, how easy was it for you and your siblings to fight over absolutely nothing literally? Right? It's it's in all of us. When we're quick to fight, not quick to end our fights. And Proverbs is appealing to us to get rid of that spirit because that selfish spirit is at the core of our sin. In a lot of ways, it's telling me if I have an anger problem, then I need to get help for my anger problem. There's nothing wrong with getting help from outside of me. That might be a therapist or a counselor. That might be a friend. That might be a small group leader. might be your pastor. Although I'm going to be straight with you. I'm not a miracle worker. I don't know if you've heard that. It definitely will include Jesus. Number two, constantly work on patience and peace. Constantly work on patience and peace. In other words, getting rid of my fighting spirit, that at the core of that is also some sense of becoming a more patient person. I know common sense. It's not even common sense. Common sentiment in American church life is never pray for patience. Because God will put you in a situation then where you have to use it and practice it. So never pray for it. I think that, I mean, there's like, there's like words for that. And baloney is a pretty good description. Right? That, that's like saying never pray for joy. Never pray for hope. Right? Never pray for patience is foolishness in and of itself listen to this proverbs 15 18 says a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict but the one who is patient calms a quarrel clearly the contrast here hot-tempered person and the one who is patient it's Telling us, these previous verses we saw in Proverbs are telling us that there's a sense of automatic, that it's automatic. That if I stir up a hot temper within me, the conflict is going to be the result. And so some of the question for me is, am I willing to choose not only peace, but am I willing to choose the patience that leads to peace. Now, I don't know about you, but that might feel personal. That might even feel a little painful because there aren't very many of us that go, yeah, I'm a pretty patient person. I don't know if you've noticed, but patience doesn't come naturally. It comes through Jesus. It comes through walking with Jesus and learning to respond as Jesus would respond By the way, patience is not simply waiting. Patience is waiting with the right attitude. It's waiting with a good attitude. The one who is patient calms a quarrel. Number three, stay out of other people's drama. Right There is that uh, old Polish proverb, not a biblical proverb, right? Not my circus, not my monkeys. Right? 
There's a lot in the book of Proverbs about gossip and about the desire to put yourself into other people's business. But the reality is that never works well. Proverbs 26, 17, like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is if you grab a stray dog by the ears, what do you think the odds are you're going to get bit? Like, I mean, this is like, where do they come up with this stuff? Like, this is vivid. Like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who rushes into a quarrel, not their own. There's just real value in staying out when it's not your fight. And part of the problem I think personally I see in the American experience is that we think everything is a fight and everything is our fight. And so we're always looking to fight. And I'm not saying there aren't things about which we disagree in American life that are significant. But I wonder if we're bringing often a more fighting spirit or a more peaceable spirit to the table. So what do I do before conflict breaks out? Well, I get rid of my fighting spirit. And in place of that, I replace that with a spirit of patience. And peace. And I recognize, not my circus, not my monkeys, and I stay out. So what do I do when a conflict breaks out? On the second page of your notes, when a conflict breaks out, number one, stop it as early as possible. You ever have the feeling you're driving down the highway of, your, you know, I'm going to use your relationship with whoever you have conflict with, sort of the metaphor of a highway, if you will, and... Somebody says something and a little something boils up in there and you're driving along and it boils up a little hotter and a little bigger and a little hotter and a little bigger and a little... And you're a conflict avoider, so you don't say a word, but on the inside, the words are coming faster and quicker and boiling and boiling and boiling. And then like, you know, you're driving down the highway and maybe this person's in the car with you and like an hour later, you explode. Anybody? So here's what you want to learn to do. Take the first exit. Right? Take the exit as soon as it comes. As soon as there is an opportunity to exit. This is not the same as conflict avoidance, which I will tell you about what to do to end the conflict. But take the first exit. Proverbs 17, 14, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. In other words, you know when it's a little thing, but really it's no big deal. And you know when, no, this is a big deal. We're going to have to have a conversation. So have the conversation earlier and quicker, because if you don't, you'll do this. By the time the dispute breaks out, you let that boil up for ages and ages. And then one day there's, you remember in 1836 that one time you said? Or you always say, is this, ever been there? All right, I mean, we are like, like we have memories. Like I can't remember my name some days. But I can say, Marcy, you remember in 1943 when... I know, she's like, I didn't do anything. 
And my point is not her. My point is me. That we are, we are historians when it comes to things people have done because we sit on it forever and ever and ever. Hey, uh, I might be in a little trouble later. Sorry, babe. I love you. I didn't take the first exit, did I? Stop it as early as possible. Take a break. Use some humor. Be willing to laugh at yourself. Let steam out in a healthy way. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. I think here the word avoid can also mean to cease or stop. Not just to try to keep your mouth shut and let it build up on the inside. Number two, don't fuel the flames. Don't fuel the flames. Right? Somebody says something, they open their mouth, and something dumb comes out, like I did just a second ago. And, 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 and what you end up doing is you go, oh, look, here's some gasoline. I wonder how this is going to work out. Now, I, one of my favorite firefighters is in the room. So if there's a little flame going on, Benton, and I take out, Let's say it's not gasoline. Let's say it is lighter fluid. And you, you, you ladies or fellas ever get some charcoal going? And, and you put lighter fluid on and it's soaked in. And, but it burns down too fast. And you don't have the, you want to speed up getting this charcoal where you want it. So, you, so there's already a flame going on. And you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make this fun. You take that lighter fluid and you turn that bottle over. And you start squeezing. You, are, you guys ever been on a call like that? I bet you have. I don't know, but that sounds personally painful. Might be learned by experience, right? You singe this stuff pretty quickly by adding fuel to the fire. Proverbs 26, 20, without wood, a fire goes out. You know that about your campfire. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. Proverbs 26, 21, the very next verse, as charcoal to embers, as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. This isn't just about what happens in families. This is about what happens in communities. This is about what happens in the community of faith. Scripture is filled with stories of people who would stir up strife. I don't know about you, but I've had personal experience with that in church world, right? Leaders who take charge and then stir up strife, and then they, they like to light the match, put on the, put on the lighter fluid, light the match, and, and then just enjoy the show. It's so destructive. So when conflict breaks out, take the exit early. Don't fuel the flames. How do we end conflict to pursue peace? And by the way, having no conflict is different than the presence of peace. Right? Because relationally, you can say, we're not having any conflict anymore. In fact, we're not talking. Or hanging out with each other. Or spending time together. That's avoiding conflict. That's not making conflict peace. So how do we end conflict to be peacemakers, to pursue peace? Number one, focus on the right thing to say and the right way to say it. 
In essence, I'm saying we need to learn not to react, but to respond. During conflict, whether or not you're heard and whether or not understanding becomes something that's mutual is often based on two people who are willing to say and listen to the right things that need to be said. And say and listen to the right ways of saying it and listening to it. Listen to this again from Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Notice the contrast between gentle and harsh and answer and word. <laughs> right? An answer is a statement made in reply to something specific, a question or an accusation or a criticism. An answer is a well-chosen and respectful response. But a word is just something random that just flies out. How often are harsh words something that just... Right? That's being reactive. Like, I, you know, I mean, there's such a thing as nuclear reactivity. But hanging out really close to nuclear reactivities, you know, it, it, removing all the barriers and just saying, let me get up close and personal with nuclear reactivity has damaging consequences. Contrast harsh word with gentle answer. It's not just what I say, it's how I say it. Ephesians 4.15 tells us that in Christian community, we are to speak the truth in love. And that when we learn to speak the truth in love, we'll grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is our head, that is Christ. It is telling us that when we learn to speak truth in love, that that's when we're more like Christ. So, was Jesus always silent when there was potential conflict? Did he just avoid it and keep his mouth shut? No. Were there moments where anger came out of Jesus? Yes. But was anger the general mood of Jesus? No, in fact, his anger was reserved for very rare occasions. And specifically, occasions that were keeping people from God. That were abusing God's house. And the goal here is a sense of understanding. When, when we have conflict and tension, when our feelings are hurt, there's a reason that's happening. And a reason we're often not tuned into. And so person A and person B or group A and group B need some sense of mutual understanding about what has happened and why it has happened. But we're only going to come to that when we have truth and love. We're only going to come to that when we have answers that are said in that gentle right way. Number two, Scripture would admonish us to pursue reconciliation face to face. Pursue reconciliation face to face. Reconciliation is when two conflicting parties are made peaceful. It is one of the specific examples and demonstrations of what Jesus has done for us. That we are reconciled with God by what Christ has done for us on the cross. But we are commanded to pursue this face to face. As I said earlier, is the goal to win the argument 
Or is the goal to win the relationship? Because those are two different things. So you say, well, who is supposed to go and take the initiative towards making things right? Who is supposed to be the one who does that? You say, the, the, the person who, who was the offender, right? I'm going to wait until they decide to come apologize to me, right? All day, all night, all week, all year. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm not going to go try to make things right. Mm, they, they hurt me. They've got to come to me. You know what that is? That's pride. Jesus said, Matthew 5, if you're at the altar offering your gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, in other words, you hurt your brother. You were the offender. You remember that your brother or sister has something against you, then leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. You were the offender. It's important enough to leave your gift at the altar. Go make things right and then come back and offer your gift. In other words, don't pretend with God. Don't fake it with God that you and God are all good while you and your brother and sister are at war the worlds with each other. You were the offender, you go, you take the initiative. But same Jesus, different occasion, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, which means your brother or sister is the offender. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. So who's supposed to take the initiative? You are. What if I wasn't the offender? You are. I mean, I don't mean you're the offender. You're not always. But I mean, who's supposed to take the initiative? You and I are. We all are. Because making peace and pursuing reconciliation requires someone who will say, I'm going to win the relationship and I'm going to go and make things right rather than win the war. Number three, I need to confess my sins. Often when couples come in for counseling with me, I find that, that they come in and there's this long list of grievances because by the time I'm called to the table, that's how it generally works. And so there's this long list of grievances and he has his and she has hers and there's long, long disputes about who did what, who did what first and who was the first offender and who was the... Rarely is it one of those deals where one person is 100% right and the other is 100% wrong. And the question is, am I willing to confess my sins, my pride, my fighting spirit, my reading into things, my overreacting, my assumptions? Because all that plays into conflict. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces their sins finds mercy. I just need to be willing to confess my sins. Number four, let it go and rebuild trust when possible. Let it go and rebuild trust when possible. I'm going to be straight. This could be a whole other message, right? How to let it go. What is forgiveness? How forgiveness works. We've taught on forgiveness in the past. There's a lot there to that. 
But when I'm in conflict, or better yet, when I'm on the highway and that thing just begins to start bubbling up and I'm looking for the first exit, I often end up needing to ask myself, is this something I can let go of or not? Because if I can let go of it without saying a word, I probably should. And if I can't, if it hit a nerve that's just too strong, maybe a trauma from my childhood, maybe something that's been insecure inside of me for a long time, and it's not something I can let go of, then maybe, it, okay, I need to take the first exit, but the first exit is to pursue the conversation face-to-face. And by the way, I don't think I said this in face-to-face, but this face-to-face thing is important. Handling conflict over these things, very bad idea. Because you can't read tone, you can't read nonverbals. Somebody texts you a, 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 an attempted resolution to conflict, I guarantee you, you misread their intention. And then you write them back. And you know what they do? They misread yours. Right? So yeah, you got to get face to face. And you say, what if that's not possible? Phone call. Right? Because at least all the verbals get heard. I don't know. This is old, old thing, like where we actually talk. It's weird, I know, but it works. Let it go. Proverbs 19, 11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Choose forgiveness. Forgiveness, by the way, that Jesus paid for on the cross. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Sometimes people in a message like forgiveness, about forgiveness come to me and they say, yeah, but, but do I have to trust them? And I'm going to tell you, sometimes the nature of trust has been so broken that it has to be worked at quite a while to be reestablished. And sometimes, especially in situations that are abusive, no. No, we're never commanded to put ourselves back into trust in an abusive situation. Sometimes removing ourselves. Forgiving? Yes. Trusting? Use the principle of wisdom. You know, we've talked about a lot here. I'm guessing there's something inside of you that you need Jesus to do inside of you this week, but I sure hope you recognize you could take everything we've just said and say, This is Jesus, a peacemaker. And if you need Jesus today, maybe you'd pray with me right here, right now to receive him. Because think about it. He pursued reconciliation face to face with humanity. It was too important to leave it to chance. He paid the price for the forgiveness himself. He's done everything he can do For us to be put in reconciliation with God. And the question is, will I choose it? Will I receive it? Will I let Him save me from my own sins? And if you're like, I don't have sins. Like, are you kidding? Like, I don't think any of us can get away with saying, yeah, none of this applies to me. 
If you need Jesus today, maybe even online right here, right now, you'd pray with me. Pray like this. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you, but I admit that I am a sinner. That is to say that I do things wrong, willfully, that I fall short of what you intend. And so, Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. And thank you that you are not dead, that you are alive today. And since you're alive, take over my life and be my God and make me right with you. And out of that, make me right with others. Help me to be a peacemaker not just a peacekeeper. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's you and you prayed to follow Christ, to receive Christ, or ask for forgiveness for the first time today, I would love, love, love to know that. I'd love to celebrate it. I'd love to acknowledge it. I'd love to help you think about what's next. I'd love to give you a Bible, talk about baptism, all kinds of other things that go with being a Christian. I'd love to say welcome to the family of God and welcome to Harvest. Welcome to our family. We're so, so glad you're here. Again, even online, I'd love to know. But you got to let me know, right? You can let me know by telling someone you're with. You can let me know. They'll tell me. You can let me know uh, by seeking me out after service. You can let me know by uh, filling out a communication card or emailing me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at HarvestChurchEugene.com. Some of us made the decision to become a Christian quite a while ago. And yet we realize that that fighting spirit is still, still something happening inside of us, right? And if you're with me and you need this prayer of application, would you stand with me and would you pray this prayer out loud with me? Dear Jesus, thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. So be peace in my life. Show me how to be a peace lover and peacemaker. Help me to develop wisdom. And in that wisdom, develop humility and patience. Help me to know how to end unnecessary conflict. And know how to handle conflict in healthy ways that honor you and pursue peace. Jesus, fill our church with your spirit so we can be peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stay standing.